0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Robert Lustig. I'm uh, one of the uh, uh, pediatric endocrinologists here at UCSF, do obesity research, for those of you who don't know. Um, I've heard Rob talk now three times, twice without slides and once with, and Each time he's spellbinding, but the slides were just uh, put it over the top. Thank you. Um, It's my pleasure to host and moderate this uh, first session, uh, and uh, my privilege to introduce the first speaker within the session, Susan Lynch. Susan is an associate professor of medicine here at UCSF, has been for the last 10 years, and she directs the Colitis and Crohn's Disease um, Microbiome Research Corps here at UCSF. Uh, one of the things that has come out of microbiome research is that not only do um, these bugs live in our gut and do things elsewhere in the body, but they actually... Uh, Translocate across the gut and take up residence within our body. So you can actually find bacterial DNA and bacteria in parts of your body. And the question is, why are they there? What does that mean? Does that have any role in disease? This is one of the things that is being ferreted out now in numerous labs, including Dr. Lynch's. Uh, question of... Autoimmune disease, such as asthma, other inflammatory conditions like Rob mentioned, rheumatoid arthritis. What role do these microbiota play in the development of some of these diseases? Um, I've heard everything from IBS to IBD to even multiple sclerosis having some relation to, these, you know, to what's going on in the microbiota. So Susan is one of the uh, pioneers in the relationship between what's going on in our gut and what's going on in our immune system. So with that, Dr. Lynch.
1: Wonderful. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Robert, for that um, introduction and also for the invitation to be here today. And today I'm going to talk to you about uh, not just the microbial communities that live on and in the human body, but how they interact with the host immune response in uh, mechanisms that dictate susceptibility to chronic inflammatory disease. And to begin with, I, w- I want to start at the beginning. And I love this, this uh, image from Leonard Eisenberg, which essentially follows the evolution of life on Earth. And what you can see is down in this lower part of, the, of the, the tree is that from the birth of the planet, microbes are the first organisms that populated the, the, this um, earth. And it's actually through their, their production of oxygen that led to the great oxidation event that drove the biodiversification of all biological uh, life on this planet to what we see today in the current era. And Microbes are immense in their numbers on this planet. If you consider that there's 1 by 10 to the 22 stars in the universe, cellular microbes, bacteria and fungi are estimated to be at 1 by 10 to the 31 organisms on this planet. And viral entities are 1 by 10 to the 32 uh, virus particles on the planet. So this is these are astronomical, truly astronomical numbers of organisms that populate the planet. And they are everywhere. They are ubiquitous. They are found in the most extreme environments that are inhospitable to most other forms of life. And they've evolved mechanisms to survive in every niche that is... Uh, present on the planet, and so all biological life on this planet has co-evolved in a microbial environment, and humans are no different. And as you heard from Rob, the human superorganism is a conglomerate of microbial mammalian cells. And the organisms that inhabit the human host are not simply bystanders. Again, as you heard, they contribute key functions to the human host. They actually participate in competitive exclusion, and the microbial organisms in healthy systems can actively outcompete pathogens in particular niches and prevent them from invading or outgrowing in these, these sites. They've also, because they've co-evolved with us, confer functional advantages, including biosynthesis of vitamins such as B12 and folate production in early life, and they dramatically expand our metabolic repertoire with the capacity to perform functions such as fermentation, which leads to short-chain fatty acid production. And these short-chain fatty acids really have very pleiotropic effects, and they're all beneficial. They are both an energy source for colonocytes that line the gastrointestinal tract, and they also are anti-proliferative and anti-inflammatory. So microbial metabolites and microbial products uh, secreted into the gastrointestinal lumen are, uh, have, have very many uh, beneficial effects. And for our part, humans have co-evolved a very sophisticated kind of microbial biometric scanning system to understand which organisms are present and how to respond appropriately to them. And with this me- these mechanisms, we can recognize old friends that we've co-evolved with symbiotically are foes. And these uh, systems are derived through receptors on cellular surfaces and intracellular that can recognize microbial ligands and products, And, for example, the host immune response can recognize uh, viral double-stranded DNA, uh, can recognize bacterial cell surface-associated ligands such as lipopolysaccharide, and fungal sugars such as beta-glucans, and responds appropriately to these microbial signals to dictate the tone of host response to the microbial communities that are present in the variety of niches in which they inhabit in the human host. But we have very dramatically changed our interaction with microbes in the last um, several decades. Really, as we moved from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic and Bronze Age and pre-industrial era and were moved from hunter-gatherer societies to larger social groups with domesticated animals during these large epidemiological changes, we didn't really change our interactions with microbes in the environment. We still had close contact with soil and waterborne organisms, Um, And it's really with the the last large epidemiological shift in the industrial era that we have dramatically changed our interaction with microbes with which we have co-evolved. We now, two-thirds of the Earth's population, live in cities, in urbanized areas in which our contact with soil microorganisms is very much diminished. And we sanitize our water, our homes, we have a a lot lot more antimicrobial administration, we have far less animal contact, and in uh, more recent times, we have dramatically changed our diet in developed or industrialized nations. And one of the upshots of that is uh, there's quite a famous. image from an article in New England Journal of Medicine a number of years ago, that as we've gotten a handle on infectious disease, which we quite frequently um, treat with antimicrobials it should be said, we've seen this creep and dramatic rise in chronic inflammatory diseases such as asthma, multiple cirrhosis, inflammatory bowel disease, and what's missing from this of course is obesity. And so these diseases are typified by a shift in the adaptive immune response. And this is the arm of immunity that allows the the host to sense by means of these dendritic cells or antigen-presenting cells, they sense microbial products in the environment of the the human host. And they transmit that signal to naive T cells, which then appropriately proliferate and produce uh, pro-inflammatory molecules to combat the pathogenic uh, microbial presence. And there are, and it's over-exaggeration of these T helper responses, TH17, TH1, or TH2, which are characteristic of chronic inflammatory diseases and autoimmunity. And, the other branch of adaptive immunity is T regulatory cells. And these cells are what downregulate these pro inflammatory responses. So, in the typical normal healthy situation, there's a, a, a microbial pathogen that is responded to with a pro inflammatory T helper cytokine response. And then the T regulatory cells come in and downregulate the, the pro inflammatory response, and everything goes back to a homeostatic uh, situation. But in chronic inflammatory disease and autoimmune disease, there's a failure to downregulate this pro-inflammatory response, and what ensues is an exaggerated T-helper cell response and prolonged chronic inflammation. And so asthma incidence has been on the rise, as many other chronic inflammatory diseases particularly in industrialized nations over the last several decades. And it really is the poster child chronic inflammatory disease because there's been quite a large a number of epidemiological and microbiome studies um, in this field. And as you can see from this map, the incidence of disease is most prevalent in Western, westernized or industrialized nations, the Americas, Australia, and pockets of Western Europe. And many... Uh, Studies have been carried out, epidemiological studies, to identify risk factors for allergic asthma development in childhood, with the idea being that if we can intervene early in the disease, that we may actually prevent disease development. And as you have heard from Rob, many of the factors that I list here uh, are risk factors for allergic asthma development. And they include a lack of exposure to furred pets or livestock, either in the prenatal or uh, postnatal period in early life. Antimicrobial administration, again, prenatally, are in the very earliest phases of life. Formula feeding and cesarean section are amongst those factors that are risk uh, factors for allergic disease development. And we look at these through a microbiological lens and think of them as strong selective pressures on the human host microbiome. And as I mentioned, these factors are really centered around the very earliest phases of life. And studies from uh, over a decade ago now, which were culture-based, not even culture-independent analyses, showed that children at three weeks of age who had a significant enrichment of Clostridium difficile or Escherichia coli in their feces or in their gastrointestinal microbiome were at a significantly higher risk of allergic sensitization development, which is quite commonly a precursor to asthma development in childhood, in later childhood. So what happens in the earliest phases of life in the gut? Well, it turns out that this is a critical period of microbial accumulation in the gastrointestinal tract. And it's emerging in in other literature that this kind of accumulation of microbial species occurs at other mucosal sites such as the upper respiratory tract. So this is simply a plot of bacterial diversity in meconium, the first stool sample, and then subsequent stool samples collected at 1, 3, 6, 9, and 12 months of age from 25 children. And what you can see is that in meconium, which is the first bowel movement, we can see a diversity of organisms, bacteria, in those samples. Irrespective of the breadth of this diversity all children accumulate bacterial diversity over the first year of life. And this occurs, this microbiome development, occurs in tandem with immune development in the human host. It's during this critical first year of life that we begin to produce uh, IgA, which shapes microbiome composition in the gastrointestinal tract, Specialized cells in the crypts of the gastrointestinal tract produce defensins. These are antimicrobial peptides, which again shape the types of organisms that reside at this site. So this is a really critical period of microbiological and immune development, and it's why we think the risk factors that we associate with developing childhood allergic asthma are centered around this critical period. And so we have put together, when we take all of this information from the epidemiological studies and what we know about early life microbiological and immunological development, we've hypothesized a causal pathway for childhood allergic asthma development. And I don't believe that this is exclusive to allergic asthma. I think that this forms an infrastructure for understanding other childhood diseases such as childhood obesity. But the hypothesis uh, posits that it's the very early life neonatal microbial environment of the child which essentially uh, is a library of microbes to populate the developing gastrointestinal tract of the child. This is an influencing factor in microbiome development, but that microbiome development in this critical period is also strongly shaped by factors such as host genotype, delivery mode, as you heard earlier on, early life nutrition, antimicrobial use, those factors that are risk factors for disease development. And that is the composition, and we think more importantly, the functional attributes and activities of these microbial communities that that influence the host immune response by presenting ligands and producing metabolic products that influence the tone of host immunity. And that collectively, this interaction is what ultimately dictates susceptibility to disease development in childhood. And so if this is true, and this hypothesized causal pathway really is in effect, you would imagine that the bookends of this hypothesis, uh, neonatal microbial environment and disease development would have a relationship. And so a number of years ago, we worked with uh, collaborators who we still work with at Henry Ford Hospital, who were one of the first to show that early life exposure to dogs and to a lesser extent furred pets confers protection against uh, early life ATP or allergic sensitization development and subsequent asthma development. So we postulated that this is because there is a microbial differential in homes in which dogs, cats, or no pets are present and set about examining this. And that is exactly what we found. Homes in which there were no pets present, in which children have a much higher propensity to develop allergic asthma, are bacterially impoverished. There is a much smaller library of bacteria present in those homes for population of the gastrointestinal tract. And we had the, the wonderful opportunity to work with the Inner City Asthma Consortium, another birth, birth cohort, uh, s- uh, centered in, in four distinct, very low socioeconomic uh, centers in Baltimore, New York, Boston, uh, and St. Louis in which we took house dust samples collected at three months of age and profiled the bacteria that were present. And in this birth cohort, we knew the actual clinical outcome of those children at two years of age. And we had relatively similar numbers of samples in four groups, in which there were healthy children who were neither atopic nor recurrent wheezers at age two, Those that were simply just wheezers, those that were simply allergic, and those that were more severe and had both allergic uh, sensitization and recurrent wheezing. So these are the children that would go on to be asthmatics. And we saw the exact same phenomenon, even though this is a completely different environment, the inner city, that children who go on to develop allergic uh, sensitization and recurrent wheeze are those that lack bacterial diversity exposures in the very earliest stages of life. But can the local environment actually influence the gastrointestinal tract was our next question. And we set about examining this with a mouse model because apparently our IRB would not allow us to feed house dust to children. Um, And so we set up a model in which we took house dust that were microbiologically dichotomous from homes with dogs present or no pets present. And we orally gavaged this house dust uh, in a solution to mice for seven days before we started uh, challenging their airways with cockroach allergen. And during this period, we maintained that uh, microbial inoculum of the gastrointestinal tract. And what we found was, quite strikingly, that the animals that received the dog-associated house dust were the only ones that showed a significant decrease in allergic uh, sensitization-associated cytokines in their airways. They also had significant decreases in mucin-associated genes, which are a, a hallmark of a pathological response in the airways. And I have to say, this is one of my favorite histological panels that we've ever generated. This is showing control animals that are not supplemented and are never received uh, cockroach sensitization. And their air spaces are pristine. These are control animals who we just sensitized, and you now you see that the air spaces are now occluded with pink staining mucin, and there's a lot of inflammatory infiltrate around these air spaces. Animals that received no pet associated house dust also have quite a lot of mucin hypersecretion and um, goblet cell hyperplasia and uh, inflammatory response. But these are the animals that received that microbial inoculum from dog-associated house dust, and they have pristine airways. We went on to show that this inoculum, this, this house dust exposure, dramatically restructured the gastrointestinal microbiome of these animals, and that's what was associated with airway protection and that a specific organism in the gastrointestinal tract of protected animals, Lactobacillus johnsoni, was capable of eliciting a protection when we fed it by itself to these animals. And so that suggested to us that there is something going on in the gastrointestinal tract that allows protection of remote mucosal sites and down-regulates pro-inflammatory responses to allergens. And I should point out that we also showed that we could protect these animals against viral respiratory infection also, so that we can change the gastrointestinal microbiome structure and, we think, function in a manner that protects remote mucosal sites from chronic inflammation. And so uh, a study that was published soon after our study was published from Ben Marsland's lab really got us down to mechanisms of how we have this gut airway access. How can microbial activities in the gut influence immune response in the airways? And in Ben's group, they fed mice a poorly fermentable fiber or a highly fermentable pectin, which is uh, fermented by microbes only in the gastrointestinal tract to produce short-chain fatty acids. They used a very similar uh, model to ours in which they cockroach allergen sensitized the airways of these mice and showed that the animals on the high-fiber diet were significantly protected against allergen challenge when they were capable of having the microbial communities in the gut transform those fermentable fibers into short-chain fatty acids. And in fact, what they showed that it was increased short-chain fatty acid concentrations in the gut and circulation of these animals, and most specifically propionate, that was associated with protection of the airway mucosal surface against allergen challenge. So this is all wonderful. We have a proof of principle uh, in mice that microbial metabolism the gastrointestinal tract not just protects at that site, but has far-reaching effects on remote mucosal sites, But what about in humans? And a study that came out two months ago in science translational medicine involving 300 neonate and infant stool samples from a group in Canada has shown that this phenomenon exists in humans. In children who are at high risk for asthma because they show early life allergic sensitization, They have a very distinct gastrointestinal microbiome composition, and they lack critical fermentative organisms such as Lachnospira, Valinella, Fecali bacterium, and Rothia. They're also significantly depleted of the same short-chain fatty acids that the Marslands group had shown protects mice against airway allergic challenge. Um, And furthermore, this study went on to show that if you just simply take these four um, organisms— that were most significantly depleted in allergic children and feed them to mice, that again you can protect the airways of those animals with this simple consortium of organisms who are active in fermentative metabolism in the gut and producing these short-chain fatty acids which downregulate immune response and induce immune tolerance. So what does this tell us? It, it tells us that um, the gut microbiome plays a critical role not just in modulating immune responses locally in the gastrointestinal tract. It's not a surprise that inflammatory bowel disease or, or diseases that are centered in the GI tract are associated with the dysbiosis and dysfunction of the gastrointestinal microbiome. But more stunningly, it tells us that the gastrointestinal microbiome has far-reaching effects at multiple other organ systems and mucosal sites, and that it may well be that microbial metabolism is an under-recognized mechanism of modulating host immune responses in a manner that dictates host health status. And so that suggests to us, and these are our efforts that are ongoing in the group, that it may be a combination of microbial supplementation with appropriate dietary interventions that really re engineers the microbial communities in the gastrointestinal tract to produce a broad spectrum. We don't believe for a second that this is exclusively a short chain fatty acid. Issue that we're seeing. We think that there is, and we've evidence that there is, dramatic uh, microbial metabolic reprogramming in children at high risk for uh, allergic disease and, in fact, obesity development as well. And so, what we have to think about are not single species supplements, but really consortia of organisms that work in unison to transform dietary components into a suite of anti inflammatory uh, metabolic products that influence the tone of host immune response. And that, for me, I think is the next frontier in uh, personalizing, in these kinds of therapies and personalizing these therapies for the specific microbiome dysbiosis and metabolic dysfunction that these uh, individuals uh, with specific uh, disorders and diseases exhibit. And clearly this uh, has, uh, these efforts and the studies that we've been engaged in have been the work of many, many uh, collaborators, uh, not least Homer Boucher and members of my own group, Kay Fujimura, Marcus Rausch, Julia Derrick, and a a number of others uh, that have really worked tirelessly to uh, produce the the data that we have developed. And especially to our, our collaborators at Henry Ford Hospital, Chris Johnson and her group, who have really opened our eyes by allowing us access to amazing birth cohort. Um, The same for the Eureka study, um, the Inner City Asthma Consortium study. And these are amazing uh, groups of of people and their their cohorts where they have been tracking these children from birth for 10 to 12 years. And I think that that's where the next frontier in microbiome research is, the capacity to follow people over time and understand their long-term outcomes. Um, Also, University of Michigan, Nick Lukacs and Tina DeMoor, Dennis Ownby at uh, Georgia Health Sciences, and um, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, uh, Owen Brody, who has uh, been great in dinner conversations um, on the microbiome. And, of course, our funders, uh, the NIAID, who has been a a stalwart funders of our our program, NHLBI, NCAM, and uh, intramural and foundation support. I'm happy to take any questions.
0: Right, while people are getting <laughs> going to the microphone, uh, let me just ask the first question. Uh, you're probably aware that uh, your colleague Michael Cabana's uh, study using prebiotics mm-hmm. in uh, probiotics. children, probiotics, sorry, in children uh, who are at risk for asthma was not successful. Mm-hmm. Would you care to speculate why? Was it the, uh, uh, the, the concept or was it the, the diet?
1: So I, I think where we need to become more refined is understanding subgroups within a disease entity. Asthma is a very large umbrella term, and it's becoming evident that there are, are subsets of, of, of individuals and groups of patients within, the, within that umbrella of disease that are phenotypically, physiologically quite distinct. So one of the, the areas that has moved forward in the field is kind of taking an approach like we have with the microbiome and examining sensitization patterns in children to subset them into groups that are at really high risk for asthma versus those that are not. That was not necessarily done in Michael's study. Though we've been looking at the microbiome in his samples, and there are pretty interesting changes in microbial composition and metabolism that would suggest that these children are protected at least in the first year of life. But the asthma diagnosis is made much later in those children. And there's a lot of intervening. There's an interval afterwards that there's plenty of opportunity to modulate the microbiome. So, yeah, I think we need to become more refined in our definition of disease and understanding subgroups under umbrella groups of of disease entities and understanding the specific uh, groups that are protected by probiotic species.